0: Hi, and welcome to the Mount Hamilton Baptist Church podcast. We hope you enjoy listening to this message. For more information, go to mhbc.ca.
1: If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Amen.
0: Now, my guess is that even if you have never darkened a church door before, if you've never cracked open a Bible, if you don't know any passage of Scripture at all, that you've probably heard that one before. And there's probably a particular place, if you think about it, if you're like, I'm not sure I recognize it, where you've probably heard it read a ritual that we often engage in our culture. Maybe for some of you it's been a long time since you've been to one of these. Where did you hear this read? weddings, right? This is a very popular passage to have read at weddings, and I'm guessing a lot of you will have heard it read there. Um, It's popular because that makes a lot of sense, right? It makes a lot of sense to read this beautiful passage when two people are celebrating their love. In fact, I have used this to teach at weddings, encouraging couples to be patient and kind to one another. It is really beautiful to use in that context. But it might surprise us to know that that's not the reason or the context in which the passage is written at all. This passage wasn't written about romantic love, although of course it applies. It wasn't written to be read to couples who were pledging love to each other. It wasn't written to talk about boyfriends and girlfriends, husbands and wives. It wasn't written for those things. Um, It was written for the church. It was written for a community of believers, just like us, a group of people trying to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus of all ages, all relationships, all backgrounds, all genders, learning how they would be community together. This particular church to which it was written uh, was in a place called Corinth. Now as I often say, and many of you quote me saying, the Bible is a book of many smaller books, and this book is a letter. It started as a letter written by a man named Paul, who was a leader in the early church, and he's writing it, writing it to these Corinthians who live in Corinth, an ancient city. You can visit the site. The city's not there anymore, but a large metropolitan city that was a difficult place, I would think, to be a Christian, and certainly at this time in history. This is when the church is just a little baby church. It's the first group of Christians ever And what had happened is someone had gone to Corinth and they told some people about Jesus and they were like, this is good news. We want to follow this way of life. There was probably just a few dozen of them calling themselves Christians. And they had their work cut out for them because Corinth was a hard place to be a Christian. We know from excavations in Corinth that it was extremely religiously diverse. Uh, There have been many different uh, sites that have been excavated that worship different types of gods, so there was a lot of worship of false gods. We also know that it was a port city that uh, quite famously uh, many people compare to sort of like the Las Vegas of its day, right? You could go for a few days, go into port, have some fun, leave. You're done. Right? And so it was known as sort of this wild place. And so now there's this group of people trying to figure out, well, now I'm following Jesus and what does that look like? And this man, Paul, writes writes them a letter to address some of the things that he's hearing that's happening in Corinth, some of the problems he's hearing about, to help them remember what it means to follow Jesus, to give them wisdom about how they're going to do that well. And so we still study this letter to learn these truths that still apply to us. And this love passage is actually found in the context when Paul is talking to them about spiritual gifts. Now we talked about spiritual gifts a lot in the fall. Lots of you were here for that. And what they were were these things that God gives us and gave the people in Corinth as as a witness of his presence in their lives. And what it would seem that was happening in Corinth was there was kind of like a battle of the gifts. They were fighting over which gifts were better and they were fighting over you know, who was more spiritual because they had certain gifts versus those who didn't or what gifts you should have to prove how spiritual you were and so some of them are saying well I have the gifts of tongues so clearly I'm a better Christian than you and some are saying yeah but I have the gift of prophecy so I think that's more important and then some are debating well what about the gift of knowledge that we understand and can teach and know how this is uh, what's happening in God's word and these are the things they're debating about and right before the passage Leslie read Paul says okay let me be clear no gift is more important than another actually you know what you're like what you're like all of us are like you're like a body some of you are a hand some of you are a foot some of you are an eye all of them are important none of them are more important than another you all work together in the body of Christ that's what he's just said, and then he really hunkers down with this point, point. and then he says, in fact, you know what? If you have the gift of tongues, but you don't even love people, that gift is kind of pointless. He says, in fact, you're fighting about whether or not you have tongues, but if you have tongues, but you don't have love you know what, you're like, just like a gong that's sounding, like a cymbal crashing. That was a reference to something that was very common in pagan worship. That would happen in their temples, they'd sound gongs. And so he says, you know what, you are no better than those who are worshiping the false gods when you do that. He says, in fact, if you have the gift of prophecy, but you don't have love... Why does that get you? If in fact you give everything you have to the poor, and you even give your own life, if you give your body over to the flames, you give everything you have to God, but you don't do it out of love, you gain nothing. That's a big challenge, right? As he's talking about these gifts, he's saying, what this passage is really about, not romantic love. It's about how it doesn't matter how religious you are or how good you are if you don't have love. That your spiritual actions, even the most impressive, are meaningless if your love isn't the basis of those things. He's saying love is the foundation on which your church should be built. That's what he's saying to the Corinthians, you should start with love. Love needs to be the basis that it all comes from. And if you don't have that, you're missing something really important. It's interesting when you're talking about how uh, noise in the background, right? Like if you don't have love, and then there's like a whole lot of noise that you have to hear from. So excellent sermon illustration, Maisie, thank you. But we have to have love. And we love each other enough to even be sometimes a little bit messy in church, right? Religion without love actually can be dangerous. Some of you know that. Some of you know people that are very religious and they're very awful. (laughs) Some of you know people that are very good, that follow, as, as certain definitions would define it, that follow every rule, but they make you feel terrible. That's religion without love. If we get extreme and see how dangerous it is, just one example from history, we could use Philip II of Spain. A deeply religious man, we know this to be true, never missed going to worship, read his Bible faithfully, and led the Spanish Inquisition and killed thousands of people. Right? Because you know, you didn't follow how we need to address this is we need to like torture and kill people who don't follow Jesus. Religion without love. It's dangerous. And in Corinth, this is happening too. So he's saying, you know, you're, we know you're learning here, but there's some stuff that you're struggling with and they're having lots of issues. One of their issues, he says, is you need to stop suing each other. They're taking each other to court all the time. He says, you're Christians now, sit down and talk about, talk it out. He says that they're quarreling and they're jealous of each other. And of course, they're fighting about who's more gifted and more spiritual and who's a better Christian. And he says to them again, you need to start with love with loving each other. And today, you know what, we, we can sound like the Corinthians, and we could also say, well, you know, look at us. Look at how much money we give to help others. We did that in our budget meeting last week. We celebrated how much we were able to give. We could say, look at how many people we have in our church, how it's growing. Look at how many children we have. Look at how great the sermons are. Maybe, no? Okay. Oh, that was nice. I wasn't going for that, but whatever. Anyway, (laughs) but we could say all those things, right? And then God says, but do you have love? (laughs) Do you love each other? And we can miss it. And I'll say it again, your spiritual actions are meaningless without love. Which of course then brings us to the question, what is love? As Hadaway in the 90s asked us. Some of you remember that song, right? What is love, baby? And we could go through lots of pop songs that ask, what is love? I want to know what love is, Foreigner saying. We all wonder, right? And we ask that question. And of course, what Paul is talking about here is the godly love that happens in community. It's not love that we find on Tinder or Match.com. It's not love that ends in a wedding ceremony and slow dances. It is the love that we have as God's people for each other, and it is Beautiful, and then he describes it, right? And he says, you know what, love is patient. I'll just use some of of the examples in here. What's interesting is that word in the original language, the specific incident that they would use it for was how we treat people. So it wasn't patience like we're sitting at a red light and we need to be patient for it to change. It was the patience we have with others. It says it doesn't boast. The word that we translate doesn't boast is a really weird, obscure word that quite literally could be translated, it does not act like a windbag or a braggart. It's not proud, quite literally. It's not puffed up. It keeps no record of wrongs. This is one of my favorites. It comes from an accounting word. The Greek word originally was a word that was used in accounting, literally banking. And so he's saying, Love doesn't keep account. It doesn't keep a list of how much you did and I did. You did this many chores. Now I did this many. I favor give you this many times. You have to do this many. I've done this much. Now it's your turn. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And, you know, we see how much we struggle to live in a foundation of love in so many parts of our lives. We see it everywhere. I have two kids, as most of you know, and they're now 12 and 9. And just last week, I had this reflection. We talked to them about what it means to act in love, which is always a challenge with, you know, a 9 and 12-year-old boy and a girl, and we have a lot of discussions about that. And uh, this particular day, so in our house, our kids, when they wake up in the morning, they have uh, that's when they usually have some screen time. And they start the day, they can either watch TV or they can like go on their devices for a little while. And so they have a system. It's an elaborate system. I don't know when they came up with it. We did not give them this system. They have a schedule of who gets the TV each day, like who gets to pick what they're watching for that half an hour or so. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, my daughter had a sleepover, so she wasn't going to be there in the morning. And then my son was like, yeah, like, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. I was like, well, like, you could watch TV. He's like, no, like, I'm not allowed because it's not my morning. And I was like, Lucy's not here. She's at a sleepover. And Lucy's like, yeah, that's right. It's not his morning. He's not allowed to watch. Because... And so we're just sitting, I'm like, this is the most illogical thing I've ever heard. It was a long discussion where they're like, mom, and part of me wants to be like, all right then, like you figured this out. But we pause to have this discussion. That's what we do, right? We put rules around things. And we don't just do it when we're 9 and 12. And we had this discussion about, well, what does it mean to love your brother? (laughs) Really, that takes some reflection, right? You know, (laughs) it it means we don't keep a record. We don't keep a count. We're not self-seeking and we find it hard. We find it hard in churches too. Sometimes we really want to keep account. I remember a number of years ago getting a phone call from someone that uh, was looking to do a funeral, not from the church, and they had done a funeral here a number of years before, and they wanted to arrange it again. They wanted to have it here. And so they said, How much does it cost to do the funeral? And uh, a few uh, sometime before that, we'd actually said, well, we don't actually charge to do those kind of things. Well, like That's kind of what the church is like, supposed to do, right? We asked for a little honorarium for uh, sound people or our custodian, and we're like, if you want to make a donation, you're very welcome to, but there's no fee. And they said, well, when I did a funeral 15 years ago, I had to pay $250. And I said, yeah, yeah. I said, so how come no one else had to pay that? They were mad. Right? They were angry that that rule had changed. Right? That's keeping a record of wrongs, right? Like that's saying, well, you know, 20 years ago I had to pay $250, so everyone since should still have to pay that. That's not love. It's not love. We struggle. So the Corinthians struggled with this, right? They struggled because they were fighting. They struggled because they were jealous. They struggled because they were regular, normal human people that found this hard, just like us. And then Paul uses an example. And he says, you know what it's like, actually? It's like um, our desire to look at ourselves and see these things in ourselves, right? You wanna look at yourself and prove how good a Christian you are. Be like, look at me, I speak in tongues. Look at me, I have this certain gift. I'm such a good Christian. He says, but you know, when we look at ourselves, we see a poor reflection as if in a mirror. Now the interesting thing, which I didn't actually really understand until recently, is that glass mirrors like these, these are only a couple centuries old. What the Corinthians had looked more like this. They had mirrors of polished bronze. In fact, Corinth was famous for their bronze mirrors. Today, you can buy Corinthian mirrors, because Corinth, if you Google it, just like is a fancy mirror, but not that, because Corinth was so famous for its mirrors but they looked in a mirror of polished bronze, which as you can imagine, was probably a poor reflection, right? So he says when you look at yourselves to see God, you know what you see? You see a poor reflection. You don't see fully who you are. And so I think about this and how often I feel this in my own life, right? And I look in this mirror and so often, woo, I want to look at myself to see love. And I wanna look and I wanna see God in me. But I see the same things, right? And I think, oh, love doesn't envy. And I see the ways that I can look at others and say, oh, I wish I had that, that'd be nice. Uh, Love is patient. I shouldn't probably start on that one with me. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And I think of the times uh, that I keep, I notice and I remember, you know, they did that, they think about that. I think about how jealous I can be, as I said. I think about how self-seeking I can be, even if it's as simple as getting frustrated when someone cuts in front of me in line and everything in me wants to go, hey, it's me that's supposed to be there. And so when I look in the mirror, I'm like, it is not... A clear reflection it's blurry and it's not where i see god at all then if we look at our church we can do the same thing it's a great church but if we're honest we could also have envy like the woman (laughs) And we can look and we can say, you know, I feel like that person gets more attention than me. Like they were in hospital, they got more visits than I did. They get more likes on Facebook when they share something. We can look and we can say, "Um, I like things my way. And we say, why don't they sing the songs I like? Why don't they do the things the way I like to do them? Why should I have to park across the street? I don't want to have to walk. Someone else should have to do that. Why should I volunteer? Why should I do these things? We see that we are jealous of each other. We want things other ways. And we know we want things that others have. And we know again that as we look even as a church, that it is but uh, but a poor reflection. It's a poor reflection to see love, to look at ourselves. And so what do we do? Well, Paul gave us that tip of what we do. (laughs) But we start, of course, by naming that it is true. That during Lent, it's a great time to reflect on where we need God's presence most in our lives. At Lent, we name our inadequacies. We say, yeah, this is what I don't do well. And when we're honest, we know. We can't see love in ourselves as well as we wish we could. We can try really hard. Sometimes we do really well. But our love is imperfect and not as we wish it could be, just like the Corinthians looking in a bronze mirror. But there is one place that we can see love. And Paul pointed to that, right? He said, one day we'll see it fully. And it's when Jesus returns, then we'll see the full thing. And we've already had an image of it. When we say, I see love, where we're going to see that is by looking at Jesus. And I read it at the beginning, that passage when we started, that said, this is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us. This is love. And so to see love, where we see it, we look to Jesus. And that's what we're going to do during Lent. Each week we're going to look at part of that story of that journey and how we see love in the journey to the cross. Today we're going to start with a really short story as we end to give you a reminder of what jesus did for us and it's from mark 10 and i'm reading verses 32 to 34. this is after jesus has been doing ministry for some time he's been healing people he's been teaching and it reads this it's verse 32 if you're following along in mark 10. they were on their way up to jerusalem with jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to them, him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man, meaning himself, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Now, as I said, when he says he there, he means himself. Now, this may not sound like much of a love story. It's not very romantic. But yet, it is one of the greatest acts of all time. One of the greatest images of love is Jesus walking back to Jerusalem before his death. Let me tell you why. Jesus had avoided Jerusalem for a long time. This was their capital city, but it was also the religious epicenter. It was where the temple was. It was where the religious leaders wa- were, the chief priests. Um, and at that time, the religious law had great authority. And so they could be, he could be brought up on charges by the religious authorities, by people that accused, could accuse him of heresy and blasphemy, and they could demand his death. And so up to this point, he's up, you know, for some time before this, he stayed out of Jerusalem. And likely his followers assumed he was doing that to avoid getting himself killed or at least charged and put in jail. But now they're walking to Jerusalem. And his disi- and it says, I love these two words, it says, those his disciples were astonished. <laughs> they're like, why are we doing this? <laughs> and those following are afraid. They're afraid. Because really, this was the equivalent of a wanted criminal stepping into police headquarters with, his, with their wanted poster all around, right? Why would you do that? Especially when you know you're innocent. And so, as he says this, what's interesting is Jesus takes them aside, right? They're scared and they're astonished. And he doesn't go, listen, it's going to be okay. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to hand me to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified, spit on, flogged, and then I'm going to die, right? eyes, they always seem to miss that part. And we might ask them, why would he do this? Why would he go to Jerusalem? He could have stayed out of Jerusalem. He could have stayed where he was safe. He could have stayed where the people with that power were not. This isn't a place where they could send SWAT cars out to like go through the counties and find him. He could have stayed where it was safe for the rest of his life. But instead, he goes back to Jerusalem to meet this end. Why would he do it? The answer is love. As I said, this is a love story. And perhaps you see the love of Jesus in this moment. Do you see it? Do you see how Jesus is everything that the Corinthian passage describes? How patient he is. Guys, like, he's explained this to the disciples several times already. And he still has to take them aside and patiently describes it again. He is kind. He's about to show the greatest act of kindness in humanity. He is not puffed up. He does not boast. He doesn't say, let me tell you why I'm going to Jerusalem. I have this great, impressive thing to do. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He does not put himself first. He is not self-seeking. With every step, he is putting others before himself, giving all of himself away with a love that protects and trusts and perseveres and will not fail. This is love. (laughs) Not that we love Jesus, but that Jesus loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So today and in this Lenten season, we will name that to look at ourselves is to see but a, pure, a poor reflection of what love is. But we are naming where we can look. We can look to Jesus. When we look to Jesus, we will see love. The love that we don't have of our own, but we have through him. We want to see, we can't always see clearly, but when we look to Jesus, that's where we see the love we long to see. We're going to take a few moments to pray together. We're gonna do this each week, and I'm gonna invite you to just quietly, um, in this moment, we know it's not gonna be perfectly quiet, to reflect on what it means to be loved by God. Pause and picture God's love for you. Just like Leslie had that image of Zacchaeus as image as Zacchaeus seeing Jesus. Close your eyes. Picture Jesus looking at you with deep love. Picture him smiling at you. Taking pleasure in you picturing him holding you. Picture the moments that you are panicked and distraught and wailing and crying, being rocked and hugged and loved by a God who loves you deeply until you are calm. Picture Jesus on the cross and picture him looking at you and saying, I love you.